Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast. I'm B. Stevenson and I'm speaking today to Andreas Hansen, who is the Senior Policy Advisor for Ocean and Conservation Finance at the Nature Conservancy. We're going to be speaking about the historic High Seas Treaty for Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction, which was reached very recently after a decade of talks. So, Andreas, could you just give a little bit of background about what was at stake for these negotiations? You know, why were they taking place and why was the treaty needed? The main reason this treaty was needed is because the ocean is declining and the ocean is one interconnected system and two thirds of the ocean is in areas beyond national jurisdiction or the high seas and that makes up almost 50% of the Earth's surface. But we don't really have an overarching framework for conserving and sustainably using marine biodiversity in those areas. We have a patchwork of governance. Some organizations that deal with shipping, some do with fishing, some deal with deep sea bed mining, and most of them only deal with it in certain areas. So we didn't have that overarching framework, and we really needed it. And this treaty was the chance to get that in place. If we didn't do this treaty, or if they were delayed again as they've been delayed countless times, or agreements weren't reached, what would the consequence of that be? Where would we be? Well, I think we just have a continuation of a status quo that frankly is destroying the ocean. And that is not where we want to be or need to be, given that the world has agreed a new global biodiversity framework, which includes targets to protect 30% of the world's ocean, as well as sustainably managing areas under fisheries and other activities. So without this treaty, we wouldn't have all the tools we need to address that situation. What was agreed in the negotiations and how significant is this going to be for ocean biodiversity? Quite a lot was agreed. So I would really call this a milestone, a landmark treaty for the ocean that has the potential to take us from that damaging status quo that I mentioned to a situation where we have a more nature positive governance framework alongside lots of other things that need to happen in other bodies. But what specifically this treaty does is first, it establishes powers for countries to put in place marine protected areas in the high seas. And we didn't have that global universal power. There were certain bodies that could do that in parts of the high seas, but this establishes it for the whole of the high seas. The treaty, secondly, it puts in place a modern and new framework for how to do environmental impact assessments for human activities in the high seas. And it actually says that unlike most other frameworks for this in the past, you need to do a screening exercise if you think that an activity will have more than a minor or transitory effect on the marine environment. So you need to look at more activities earlier, and that is really positive. It also includes provisions for how to fairly and equitably share benefits that might arise from the use of marine genetic resources. And that's really important in terms of making sure that the benefits of the high seas actually belong to everyone because of course countries have different abilities to access them currently and so that was a key part of making this treaty possible and bring together developed and developing countries. And the last thing I'll mention is that across the treaty decisions can be made by a majority and that is really important. Of course it says and the best thing is always if a consensus can be agreed so that there's full buy-in but if that cannot be agreed, a few countries will not be able to block progress if all other countries agree that this is the right thing to do. So there's a three-quarter majority rule that applies across the treaty, and that is really good news for the environment. 
Is there anything that's missing or that isn't quite ambitious enough to do what really needs to be done to protect biodiversity in the sea? Yeah, with international negotiations, you never get everything you want. So, of course, if I or other people who really are championing the environment had written this treaty, there were certain things we would, would have avoided that is in the treaty. So, for instance, in the part of the treaty that deals with marine protected areas, there is a provision that means that countries can object to a marine protected area being established. And if they do so, it means that that area doesn't apply to them. That was necessary to get in the majority decision making. And I think overall, that's still a net benefit for the environment because it's better to be put, able to put something in place, even if it then doesn't apply to one country, rather than one country being able to prevent, let's say, 60 other countries from doing something that is good for the environment. I also mentioned earlier that the treaty puts in place this new framework for environmental impact assessments. And that framework applies to new activities. So let's say geoengineering is something that we are going to probably see more of in the ocean. And we now have a new and modern framework for how that should be done in a way that is conscious and sustainable with regard to the environment. What this treaty, again, needed to do to be agreed is that it had to leave certain other bodies and treaties alone to some extent. There's this principle of do not undermine. And so you have regional fisheries management organizations that deal with fisheries. You've got the International Maritime Organization that deals with shipping. You've got the International Seabed Authority that deals with deep seabed mining. And what the treaty says is they will continue to do that and they will continue to use their regulations and standards for doing so. The regulations and standards that are part of this high seas treaty won't directly apply. What it does say, however, is that countries that sign up to the high seas treaty and say, this is now the new best standard, this is the new best practice globally, have to promote that standard in those other bodies. So there is a way of indirectly putting pressure on and saying, you now have a new what good looks like globally, and that should be also applied in these other bodies. And quite frankly, that is where a lot of the work is needed, is to ensure that alongside the High Seas Treaty, which can do some really positive things, countries also need to take more actions and higher ambition actions in those other bodies. So the High Seas Treaty is a really important tool of getting to an ocean positive future, and it needs to be alongside action in all of these other bodies that also manage activities of the ICs. And on that, in terms of accountability for the countries, what kind of accountability or enforcement mechanisms are there in the treaty? How can we ensure that countries actually keep to their commitments once they are ratified? Yeah, this is critical. And it's one that's always tricky when it comes to international spaces and global commons. And there were a range of aspects of the treaty that help with this. There is a compliance and implementation committee that is supposed to support the implementation and compliance with what's in the treaty. It's a non-punitive committee, so it's there to support rather than punish. Some people may say not that many teeth. There is also other committees that help with implementing other parts of the agreement. Really important to have a capacity building and technology transfer committee that will help with how developed countries should help developing countries to implement the treaty. I think one key aspect is this treaty establishes a whole lot more transparency about what happens in the high seas. A lot of activity in the high seas has kind of been out of sight, out of mind. 
And what this treaty does is to require countries to give much more public notification of what are they doing, what have they assessed so that the impacts of what they are doing will be, are they using the best science possible to assess those things. And even though the international community will not be able to tell a country, no, you can't do this, it will have the information to say, I don't think you're doing this the right way. I don't think you're following international best practice. I don't think you're following the norms that are, and the international law that is being set out in this treaty. And that will hopefully create a race to the top where these international norms start becoming the way in which countries operate. And that is really how most international works. It's a normative framework that countries follow because that is the way the international community works. So that's for countries. Obviously, another very important actor in the oceans is international businesses, which obviously are active in seafood and seafood supply chains. How would the treaty impact them? In terms of enforcement and regulation of activity undertaken by businesses and companies, that is the responsibility of each and every country. A country is responsible for enforcing this new international law when it comes to their own nationals and vessels and activities that are essentially sponsored by that country. If a boat that is registered with a certain country does something wrong in the high seas, that country is responsible for sanctioning that boat. And again, this is where also the transparency will become really important because if a country isn't sanctioning in the right way, there's a mechanism for other countries to challenge the fact that the enforcement isn't happening. And can businesses get ahead of the treaty or what can they expect in terms of how it will impact their operations and can they be proactive about it now? I think they can be proactive in terms of looking at what this new framework for environmental impact assessment sets out. What are the processes that they should expect needing to engage with if they want to engage in new activity? There is still a lot that needs to be worked out. So the treaty has set the high level framework and the processes. It has also said that it will develop more detailed standards and guidelines for environmental impact. So I would say that forward-leaning and environmentally-minded businesses can absolutely get engaged with that process and provide input on what makes sense and is both environmentally sustainable and practical. Because obviously the regulations need to be applicable. They need to work for actual activities. That's the way they can be the most effective. There will be a process of developing those standards and guidelines and encourage people with an interest in sustainably using the highest seas to get involved with that. And you've covered this a bit, but what is coming next? What's the process to put this treaty into action? There's quite a few steps, and we are obviously calling for states to move through them rapidly. As you said, this is the outcome of 10 years of negotiation, and the treaty only got over the line almost 24 hours on overtime. And so there wasn't time to translate it into all of the official languages of the UN, which is needed to actually formally adopt the agreement. So that's the first next step, is that the text that was agreed and is now frozen will go through this translation exercise and then countries will reconvene and adopt it. And then the ratification process starts. And the agreement sets out that 60 countries need to ratify the agreement for it to come into force. 
that is quite a few countries, but it is pretty much in line with the Paris Agreement, which required 55 countries and 55% of emissions to ratify the treaty before it came into force. And the Paris Agreement was ratified in less than a year. What that tells us is that if there's political will and a push, that ratification period can really be quite short. And we need it to be short because, again, we have 20, 30 targets. The ocean has no time to waste. And we really need this process to go fast so that the words that are on the page of this agreement can be turned into benefits in the ocean. Well, thank you so much, Andreas, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me.